Have you ever dreamed of going to Hollywood and making it big? Well, these are the stories of people who have made it, just in a different way. They're the unsung heroes behind the screens that make movies and television come to life. Welcome to the Right Scuff Podcast, where we talk about films and interview those who are just starting their careers to some of the biggest names in production and post-production. Our mission is to inspire you through the true stories of people who have achieved their dreams. We'll be talking to Foley artists, screenwriters, sound editors, picture editors, the list goes on. And for film fans, we'll be focusing on sound and what it takes to create Foley. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a writer. And I'm John, a professional Foley artist in the film business for over 40 years. He's worked on over 500 films and is a 37-time nominated and 9-time MPSD winner for big titles such as Inception, The Matrix, and The Dark Knight. You can find us online at therightscuff.com and please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Welcome back to another episode of the Right Scuff podcast. Today we have the wonderful David Fine with us. How are you doing? No, I'm fine and thank you for that introduction. <laughs> that was sweet of you. Of uh, we'll see what happens here. But yeah. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> so I Happy would, to be here. Good, good. I would love it if you would just kind of take us back all the way to the beginning. What did you see yourself doing as a child? Oh, my gosh. Okay. All the way back to there. All uh, the way back. Uh, let, let me for, I'll first say about film. Yes. Since we're, we're talk, we'll be talking about that. We really didn't... It, I wasn't taken by film in the sense of, oh, my God, I really want to get into this and do it. Mm-hmm. I, number one, uh, going to a film was sort of uh, mm, a special... Thing right. when I was a kid. Number two, I think I was probably taken by it as children are, as escape as well. This is great. But nothing that compelled me to do it. That right. was one. Um, what I saw myself doing, I was pushed one way and another. I think my folks probably wanted me to be a dentist. Huh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think their figuring was... Um, if you're a doctor, you're going to see a lot of blood. But if you're a dentist, you're not. I mean, I think that was their figuring their logic. anyway. Um, but it was not a household that was um, academically savvy, if you will. Um, when I got to UCLA, I really can't say that, okay, I had a major. Okay. It was more like, oh, let's, let's see what's let's available. See. Mm-hmm. And... Let's get through classes. Right. Okay, that was then. and and uh, and aside to that, because we were talking, a couple of us were talking about that recently. There, there's a thing that you run for classes. I don't even know if that's still a phrase. What you do is is you you, you sign up for classes. Now, of course, your first two years are taken by classes you have to take. Right. At UCLA, you literally ran. That is, let's say it's a course like a history course or a psych course, something that you would need. You might want to get in line the night before. Wow. I actually physically get in line. So when they open the doors, you're going to be one that had it. Then you literally ran to the other locations where they were signing up for classes (laughs) and fill in your schedule. So that's why it was running for classes. Interesting. So between that sort of stuff and the, the general shuffle, uh, the university is huge, of course. Right. For me, I didn't really have uh, a place to go with it. It's like, l- right. let's see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I took an interest in sociology. Perhaps it was because it was the first class that I did well in. Um, also, um, because part of that class introduced me to applied sociology, which you don't hear a lot of now and certainly didn't hear a lot then. By then, I'm talking about the um, 60s, uh, late 60s. That's when I was there. But this was an application, and it was actually an early, early application of computer technology to teaching young kids how to read and write and write. They had, they had kids um, ages four and five putting out a little newspaper, learning on their own, interacting with the computer. Like I say, this is very rudimentary computer stuff. And it was all sociology, and I liked that aspect of it. Um, 
So when I went through, um, I focused on sociology, psychology, anthropology, and education. So I, my, my undergrad degree was in sociology, and those other three were minors. So that was my focus. Um, oh, boy. So uh, applied to grad school. Uh, got into a couple of them. Uh, Stanford made me a great offer. Uh, I chose to stay at UCLA. I had a fellowship there. I had a, fe a better fellowship at, at Stanford. The reason why, okay, is that there was an area of the, the sociology which was going to take down all studies that went before it on the basis of, now this gets philosophical, that since we're all part of a culture and all, and we all intuitively or know what's going on, we've not questioned that when we study, so we really have to break it down to basics. It was a hugely non-understandable field. The book, uh, I would read paragraphs maybe 10 times and still not get what was there. It was hugely philosophical. The purveyor, the main guy for this was at UCLA. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to stay at UCLA. So I got into grad school up there. And I kind of had an eye to how could we put film more into the sociological studies. So A, I'm really talking about making documentaries with a bent of, let's say, a sociological, psychological bent, which they all have. The other thing is that if, if we're going to do this study that breaks down everything, how do we get raw material from that? Well, if you really think about that, it's, it, it's like setting up a, a surveillance camera and looking at that, which would be boring yeah. and all, but that would be one way to collect data, right, studyable data, okay? Mm -hmm. um, this is for me now, so I'm thinking, okay, I could still put it together in some way or other. Um, I had a job on campus. The guy I worked with, we did odd jobs around the engineering department, which meant setting up and breaking down stuff, which meant hauling stuff. We did, and the guy I worked with was in film department. Who was that? Oh man, his his name was Michael Michael Murphy or Michael Malone. It was uh, uh, one of those two. The last Irish name. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had fun working, but the but the fact that I was interested in movies and he was making his movie. It's a project one. I won't go into the projects at UCLA at the time, or maybe we will. Um, so I said, "Man, do you mind if I come over and just kind of hang over your shoulder while you make it?" Which was he said, great, because A, I was able to keep him company, <laughs> and B, I got to just get a feel for it. Um, as I went on in sociology for just a little bit, I thought, I don't know if I'm going to want to do this for the rest of my life. It's going to be a lot of time in rooms parsing out what Karl Marx may have said about capitalism in this one sentence or paragraph versus Hegel or whatever. In other words... I don't, I wasn't the greatest sociology student. Why they gave me this stuff, I don't know. But B, I didn't think I wanted to do it. And, I, and at one point, I just said, screw it, I'll do movies. Applied to the UCLA Film School. The two good things about that for me, number one, I was in grad school already. Number two, they really like people coming from other um, departments. Right to kind of cross-pollinate what they had, so I got in that way, okay? Then what happened is I, was, I, was had, I had to do my, uh, my, re my film class requirements as well as the other. Um, this is a real, I'll do this quickly. There were, there were three, there were four of us who met, um, and we basically met, we were all grad students, we were all master's program, I say that because we got first dibs on equipment. And we really sat down and said, what are we going to do f with the rest of our lives? Why don't we start a group, a company? That company lasted about four or five years in school and out of school. And it really was a good, good um, setup for us. Did the company have a name? Mark David Productions. Because one of us was Mark and three of us were David. <laughs> So, oh, that's great. so we were Mark David. 
And we did, I mean, the stuff that we did, we did a documentary on the Black Panthers back in the day. We did um, uh, a musical comedy uh, period piece set in the 30s. We did a film that won, films that won festivals that got awards and such, kept us going. We worked for LA County. We did a documentary on the Cocopa Indians. Um, I'll think of some others, but it was it was very fruitful at the time, and each of us brought different things to um, to the table. And what happened is one of the guys, uh, one of the guys got started to get. We all started to get work. Was it Mark or David? It was Mark, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing was, somebody could say David, and the right David would turn around and say yes. Uh, don't ask me oh how. Um, Mark got a job. L.A. County used to have a film department, and they made public service films, and um, they needed another guy. So Mark called me and said, do you want to come on in and do... Now, when you're working for a small company, as you know, you, you wear many hats, and this was basically a small outfit of LA County. <clears throat> so what did I do there? Well, I did sound editing. I did dialogue editing, picture editing, uh, assistant directing, writing, um, all of that stuff. So it was kind of a primer in doing like small films and documentaries, which I really like. We worked with a guy who was very flamboyant, um, not only person, personally, but in his visual sense. So we were doing, I, we did, oh, uh, the art museum, we did a documentary on that. We decided, we said, let's make it a day in the life of a var an art museum starting at night with the guys who are guarding it and with their flashlights and all. And our director said, okay, let's add fog <laughs> and, and booms on the camera and all. So we set up fog machines at the exterior of county. Um, real high contrast lighting, boom and dollying shots through there. Um, the good thing about working in LA County is you had resources. When we did a documentary, for instance, on the park, we wanted aerial shots. We could call up the sheriff's department and say, we need a helicopter for it. The next day we would have it. It's that kind of a thing. So the good thing about working not only on those kinds of films and wearing different hats is that at night we can work on our projects. So... You know, we take a dinner break, walk to Chinatown, get some food to eat, come back, and <coughs> work on our pro yeah. use the equipment. They were mm -hmm. fine with it, absolutely fine. Um, okay, so from that and from the business that we had, um, there was a friend who was making a low-budget feature film. Um, he had asked me to come on board I stayed, I, I had a small part in the film, nothing big, uh, played a psycho. Um, and then I was in the editing room with dailies and picture editing, then sound editing, then dub. So that was a primer for me on the whole post, actually production and post-production of, uh, of a film. The guy I worked with was, um, Earl Watson was his name, and Earl's no longer with us. And Earl was a big man. By big, I mean maybe 360, 370, very big guy. Light on his feet, light as a dancer on his feet, and he was the one who introduced me to Foley. Wow. And, and where did he introduce that to you? Um, oh, where did we Foley? That's a good question, John. I, I can't remember where we Foley. It had to have been a very little space. Uh, someplace in town, may not even be there anymore. This was a low, low budget thing. Um, Earl knew all that, uh, how to, A, how to do all post-production. I got some really great editing tips from him all the way down the line. Um, and like I say, to look at Earl, you would not think, ah, here is a Foley artist. Right. But the man just moved incredibly and 
you know, one day he said, okay, uh, David, two days we're going to do Foley. And I said, great, what is it, Foley? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so he said, okay, well, this, this is what we're going to do. And watch me. And so we went into the stage, and I was watching him, and I was doing stuff. And I found I had a knack for it. It's just immediately a, a knack for it. And working with Earl probably helped because we had a great rapport. We were together for I don't know how many months in the same editing rooms working. Um, so after that, Earl had jobs. See, I wanted to be a picture editor. That was my, at the time, that was my that's bent. Awesome. <coughs> Earl said, you know, that's great, but if you're a sound editor, figure this. On any picture, there's one, maybe two picture editors. But look at the credits. At the time, there's six or seven or eight sound editors. He said, there are many more jobs. Why don't you focus there and work your way in the picture? I said, sounds good. Earl called me a couple of times for some jobs. So it was like being dropped into, okay, we get to sound edit now. Um, I, was, I was doing that sound editing at such a little, little place was that 16 millimeter or 35? <laughs> that was 35. That was 35. At UCLA, we shot 16. We worked in 16, except for Project One. Um, and why I mentioned that, I don't know if I don't know if this is, but Penny Spheris, who is a director who did uh, the Decline of Western Civilization, she also did Adam's Family and all. She was back at UCLA then, and she was my TA. And why I say that. Two is because UCLA had a weird thing. This is going back where we shot in Super 8. This is for Project 1 only. You did more projects there. And the sound was on 16 millimeter sound separate. The only setup like that, perhaps in the world, certainly in the US. And we had machines, of course, to do that. So um, why we hit real nicely, too, is um, my project one was about a tattoo shop down on the Long Beach Pier, which was like a kind of an underbelly thing. <laughs> and um, it, okay, real quickly, when you went, when you think about working in something, whatever, and, and we're talking about film, but it could be anything, where there's a lot of people who want to do it. There are, of course, attrition rates, and people, you know, for one reason or another, dropped out or are dropped out. Um, so the rite of pa your first rite of passage back in school was this Project One. <coughs> now, you see what happened is that uh, everybody has to do a Project One. You have to pass that to continue being in the production um, program. At the end of every semester, there's about a week that takes place in the um, theater where everybody who has completed their film that quarter shows their film in front of everybody, everybody who shows up, including the faculty, after which time you get to go up in front of everybody and they pass mics. And basically, they either praise you or take you apart. And, and people are there to take you apart, by oh the way. And, and what year was this, or years, should I say? This is probably, this went on, um, well, before me, but, but when I was there was early 70s, okay. okay? So, and everybody dreaded it, especially the Project One people, because, again, this could make or break you. So, yeah, so it, mine was... Um, documentary on a tattoo parlor happily it was well received happily i was passed on to go to pr to go to production and do you still have it i do someplace john and i don't i have no idea how i would res i would love to resurrect it into a dvd it's someplace okay yeah if you ever find it let me know i will i will i will um anyway that was that was jumping back then again um when I worked at a place called Gomillion, which was a small, independent place, a lot of people pass through there. And it's funny, when you get together with people and talk, and this is like decades down the line, and say, oh, what about, where did you go? A lot of us trace our, 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 our arc, if you will, back through Gomillion. Truly, our sonic lineage. I mean, that's where... 
I got my start, so to speak, after my mini start. But, Is that uh, where you two met each other? No, no. Really? I mean, David and I met in a very unusual way, which uh, we'll, we'll get to. But uh, so you started at Chameleon. Well, now were you yeah. an editor there? Y- yes. When 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 it was, I was doing uh, some projects that um, that Earl had called me on different ones, and I was doing Foley. The thing at the time, and I'm sure that you you passed through this time, John, where most people were, most sound editors were terrible at doing Foley. If you were good, now you got a barter system where an editor might come up and say, hey, we cut reels, and reels were basically, editing reels were 10 minutes or less of film, the film's broken up. So an editor might come to you and say, look, I'll cut the backgrounds of your reels, which means traffic and wind and people and all, if you do my Foley. So <laughs> you sort of you, you sort of traded, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and I was getting a lot with that. So I was doing less editing because I was bartering. You know, yeah, I'll do your folio. For me, it was fine. Right. For me, it was fun. For others, it was absolute agony. Mm. So that's another thing. You know, one person's ease or passion is another one's throwaway, or you know, or 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 a toil. So. A friend who I had worked at with at Gamillion um, was called to MGM to sound edit. Uh, this is when MGM still had a studio. It's now Sony, but, but a physical studio. So she was sound editing there. She called up one afternoon and said, you want to try out on the Foley stage? Okay. So this is what the deal was. And, and what year would this be? <laughs> this has got to be 77 or 78, around there. Foley was a position that changed every two or three generations. And why I'm saying that is because the guys who were running the Foley stage <coughs> were finally retiring. Now, these guys were studio lifers. I'm sure they had been there for 40 or 50 years. So again, that position did not open up. Number one. Uh, do you, I'm interrupting. Do you think they had any interaction with Jack Foley, those uh, original? The, the first guys did, I'm sure. Yeah, the, the guys who we, who we replaced, absolutely. I see. And if you don't mind me asking, who, who were those people? Um, Jack Morissette, Lovell Norman, and Scott Perry Sr. Those were, those were the three. Um, there were, I should say this. Um, now on stages there are three people and sometimes two. One or two artists, some get by with one, and a mixer who does totals. Before computers, okay, and I'm, I'm saying that a little um, tentatively because whether or not it was needed or not, and whether it was needed because of or not by technology is always a question, i.e. technology could come in, it could be an excuse to say, hey, we could get rid of 20 people. Well, maybe you can't or shouldn't, not, maybe not that much. So at one time on the Foley stage, you had three artists, I'll count these out, three artists, a boom man, which moved the microphone, a prop person, which hunted down props that you needed to use. In, in some cases, that entail walking to a shelf and taking it off and placing it for you. A, um, a recordist who loaded up the uh, film that you're recording on. A projectionist who loaded the film and watched the projector and a mixer. So you got eight people on the stage and it, it abided that way for a while, okay? Now, like I say, there are two or three. Um, Anyway, the guys, all of the guys who had been there were retiring. They had spent two years trying people out. Nobody got it. So I didn't think that my chances were all that good, but I said, well, shoot, it's a studio. It's, it's absolutely worth, worth a shot. Um, they, the other thing was that Gamillion, I know, wanted to hire me on as a staff person. So I was briefly in a very nice period where I thought, hmm, I've got two potentials here. Mind you, they're only potentials, and they, they, they are so until you sign something. Um, 
So I thought, yes, I, I'm absolutely going to take this shot. So after a while, and they had to clear it with the union because I was not union, uh, called me in. Um, I worked a little while with them. They had just gotten somebody, one person. That somebody, Kendi Fay, had been a projectionist on the stage for years. At one point in their process of, of vetting people, they were so frustrated about not getting somebody, they turned to Ken and said, oh, well, shoot, Ken, you've been here for umpteen years. Come on, you might as well come down and try. Ken tried it, and he did it. He, he did well. He did well. And they said, hmm, try this. So they gave him another, and he did well. And they said, okay, we got somebody right under our nose. So that's person number one. So I came in. Um, I remember... Um, one of the guys was really late. I could, I, I could still feel his eyes burning into my back oh, no. as he watched me <laughs> oh, no. do stuff. And I'm thinking at the time, I'm saying, okay, this was fun. I gave it a try. What the hell? I right. gave it a shot. Um, anyway, I worked out there and became Ken's partner. So Ken and I were together at MGM and at Paramount for oh, 21 years or something like that. Yeah. And backing up a second, then David, you and Ken, there was also was there also a third on the MGM stage, or was at that moment did they change things a little bit? So it was just you and Ken? No, we had uh, both. We had three people at the beginning, and then they started to back away the third, and and by that I mean that they that we, it was a sometimes use of a third person, but they really wanted to get, and we had none of the others except for a crew of three. So we're, we were down to a crew of five. Okay. Because um, they got rid of the prop person? Yes. And the boom <laughs> operator? Yes, yes. Right. But they kept the projectionist, the mixer, and the recordist. Correct, and rather than three artists, most of the time now we were two artists. Um, so uh, we were talking about an arc, and we're talking about a narrative here, okay? Of, and I realized, okay, we go back and tell the stories, and, and in the telling, it would seem, okay, this led to this, and oh, well, here's something serendipitous or something lucky, absolutely. Of course, when you're living it, it, it this is all when you're looking back. It's harder to see when you're in the moment. Yeah, and it's like, oh, you know, and things happen, and sometimes they happen because you try to will it or want it, and other times something falls in mm -hmm. or what have you. Um, so as far as me and Foley, I, you know, I could say there are a lot of different things that, mm -hmm. that I tried, and um, I never said, wow, I want to be a Foley artist. However, because I... I took to it quickly. I thought, okay, so here's a niche. I could I could do this for two years until I do something else. Then you get to work all the time. You really do. And in, in, in my experience, it's like you're working nine to five, as close to a nine to five as, as I think we have in motion picture um, all the time. What is wrong with this picture? And you get to be in a small creative group every day. And there's a lot to be said about that. You get to be creative. I'm not saying there's not a lot of bread and butter, but each day you get to make creative decisions. And that, that's kind of wonderful. And be physical and use your body. And then, David, attending with that then, um, two questions. One, when you first started working with Ken, did you feel like you were kind of on the same page with him as far as starting and then were the props that were there at MGM their property? Did you start working with those or did you bring your own in or how did that process happen? Okay, as far as props go, neither Ken nor I had props, but MGM was nicely stacked. Of course, through the years, you know, you buy stuff, you attach stuff. So yeah, we brought in a lot of stuff, but they, they were well propped. That's number one. Number two, um, Ken was, for, for Ken, he was going from a projectionist to, now I'm going to say the sound edit, we were sound editors, we had to know how to edit sound, <clears throat> because a lot of times they'd pull us off the stage and say, you guys got to go do 
poltergeist edit that or even edit our own stuff or my god uh the tv show mixes tomorrow you guys uh, we need you guys we're gonna throw bodies at this one thing so we had to be able to shift and all like that why i'm saying that is because unlike fully most fully artists we were always in the union as sound and as we changed we always kept the union so as a Foley guy, I was 35 years in the union, which didn't happen except that I was really old school MGM, and it gave them a box to check off. However, as I'm saying also, we also had to know how to sound edit because they did use us in that. The other thing I think about, Ken, so, so Ken was getting also into something. Right, so he was being boosted up in terms of pay scale and all, and I think we were I think we both felt gratitude about it, certainly Ken, because he had been there for so many years. And Ken is a good guy. He's really, I mean, he was just such, so easy to work with and all. We fell into it really quickly. Was there anything that, let's say, you naturally gravitated towards and did, and he, and then he did, or did you guys discuss it, or how did that um, divvying up, if you will, let's say, of props occur? Um, we, we never had full on that I remember discussions about it because Ken had been there first. The lead usually fell to Ken, the lead in any TV or, I mean, and that, and that was just unstated. I don't ever remember sitting it just, down. It just was. It, it just was, yeah. So, you know, Ken said, oh, yeah, I'll take that guy there. Uh, maybe I would take the lead female and he would take the secondary female and then we break it down from there. Um, props also, uh, we were able to spend two years with one of the guys who was retiring, about a year and a half. And who was that? That was Jack, Jack, Jack Norman. I, I'm sorry, Lovell, Lovell Norman. Um, Lovell was a great guy too. Lovell was well into his 60s. To my young eyes, he probably was older, but looking back, he, he could have been 70. He was still a guy who would do body falls and stuff like that. His attitude, though, was now, now at the time, Foley was changing. And that's a difficult one to see again when you're in the situation and when you're not. The reason that we knew, or I got an inkling of that, is because people would come in and ask for something Foley, and Lovell would say, Oh, I never did that. Let's give it a try. Two things about that. He never did that in however many years working Foley. So uh, we knew things were changing, the demands that were being placed on Foley were changing. Number two is that I loved his attitude. It wasn't like, oh, I never did that. I'm not going to do it. Screw it. It was like, yeah, let's give it a try. So let me then jump in, David. So yeah, would, yeah. You, would you say that um, in a sense, Foley, when you first started, there was a, a kind of a roadmap that was put upon you guys, and you wouldn't typically go outside of that. You wouldn't take a side street, et cetera. But then as the years went on, all of a sudden people would say, well, why not try this? Why not try that? And Lovell, as you just mentioned, thought, why not? I think, yes, I think it was almost happening simultaneously. That is, um, when I think back, I'm aware of Lovell's say that right, pretty much right from the beginning. So we knew, okay, people were asking different stuff for the stage. Of course, we were the new blood, so we would naturally say, yeah, let's go for it. Again, Lovell had a great attitude which is like yeah let's let's try this heck i never did it and yes i think that i don't know who were the people i have i think all of us as a group the people asking for it the people giving the stuff the people willing to say it were changing it again i'm not i didn't look at it at the time but when you look back there may have been a sea change in foley if you will at at that very time let's say in the years around late 70s if i had to put a uh, you know, a pinpoint on it, yeah. So, to me, it's clear you're very intelligent, very well-rounded. Well, thank you. I, I, I fool people a lot that <laughs> way. <laughs> so, my question is, so you've done so much between the picture editing and directing and Foley and all these things. Was it mostly other people teaching you, you actively going out and researching, or how did you 
come to know and learn and immerse yourself in all of these different things that you did all of the different things mm-hmm. okay um oh i i've got i've got a story or two okay um let's take writing okay and this is before even film school and this goes back to my first father-in-law um who was an insurance executive he was also a writer and he wrote plays and he had a success on broadway or off broadway with a play you know this goes this goes pretty far back and uh, he was the kind of guy who would say okay writing insurance writing insurance what's going to give me something that I could put, you know, a roof over the head and all. Pay the bills. Yeah. All of that good and stuff. He, was, uh, he was head of their marketing division, so he did have a creative outlet in terms of that, in terms of advertising and all. And you're exactly right. It was that kind of a thing where I think for the man and for his makeup, uh, writing, this may not happen. This might not work. Okay, um, and he was he was an older guy. He had uh, they had my wife when he was older. He had all of these unproduced plays around, and he wanted to make them turn them into screenplays. Not the easiest thing, by the way. There's not a, a, a natural like oh, there's a play. Let's yeah. make a screenplay <laughs> out of it. Um, and he thought he would solicit my wife and I to write them. Now my wife ex. Um, was a terrific writer, more on the journalistic side. Um, I think I had written by that time a few things I don't know. So we did a screenwriting class while we were still in sociology, writing on one of his ones. Uh, as you could imagine, it was terrible what we did. Um, that wasn't that was an entry to it. I've got another story too about that. Um, so he had, like I say, he had a bunch of them. So he said, when he said, David, uh, we got this interest in this script, and I want you to come in with me on it, being the nice father-in-law. And I said, great. Well, the interest that he had in the script, and it was a kind of a supernatural suspense script set in San Francisco. He had Jay Lee Thompson. Jay Lee Thompson was the director who did Guns and Navarone, which at the time was a pretty big deal action film and then he graduated to some of the planet of the apes and also so jay lee was interested in it and so was Stuart whitman actor he had won an academy award i think or at least been up for one well okay so this is what i'm getting into so on every other weekend or so we'd hop in his car and we'd tool up and we'd go to Jay Lee Thompson's house, which was right on the beach in Malibu, and we'd talk story, and Stuart would wander up from the beach, and they'd all do their input, and we'd show them what we'd be working on. I only submit it because, as I look back, that was a hell of an entry <laughs> into motion pictures. <laughs> it was like, whoa, you know, for, for, uh, for a kid of 20-something or other. So that was one of those stories. But you said yes to things, and you were open, and you, you went for it. I'm going to jump in on a couple of things and, and ask you uh, some questions. Um, do you remember where you were when Star Wars came out and what you th- thought when you first saw it? Um, I was working on, oh, gosh. It may have been the original The Hills Have Eyes or something like that. It was one of those. And I was working with a, another, uh, uh, there are two of us working. And he comes in and he said, uh, stop what you're doing. We're not working this afternoon. I'm taking you to a movie. And I said, well, what's up? And he said, I just saw it. It blew me away. I'm going to see it again and again and again. And we went for the matinee of Star Wars. <laughs> uh, in the middle of you know of whatever deadlines we had, we made it up late nights before, but he's afterwards. But he said, "You got to go, you got to go." So that's and and yes, it absolutely blew me away. Yeah, cool. it, it, uh, it's 1977. The Hills Have Eyes. That's what you were working on. I think so. That's what your IMDb says. Uh, okay. so let's jump into a section now where. And you probably remember this because my mind is all muddled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that I was working on a picture called Black Stallion, and I needed to get a horse hoof or hooves or something yes. for the deck scene where Black runs on the deck and then goes over the side of the boat. I, 
I cannot remember. Maybe you can tell me how is it that I got your name to to ask you to borrow those. And that's funny. It's and and I'll go back to the question also about props and getting into foley. Sometimes these things just happen. And I number one, I I I. I can't knit that story together. I can't give you an answer. And number two, again, some things just seem to happen so, what should I say, organically or naturally. Yeah. I don't know. I think you called John. Um, I don't know how you got it. Maybe you asked around and said, you who know, are the guys at MGM? I think actually now, as I recall, it's probably somebody at Chameleon told me that. Okay, that makes I sense. Think, I think that's what happened there. And, and uh as a very quick side story to this, by the way, of course, when I went to MGM to meet you, yeah. as I was going on the lot, I was carrying an attache case, and a guy ran up to me and said, well, where are you shooting? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, Mr. Lucas, where, where are you going? Oh. Uh, no, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm just a Foley Guido. John Resch, I, I want to go to the Foley stage. Oh. So, of course, then you, you had me come in the stage, and uh, you gave me, excuse me, lent me these wonderful props that, that uh -uh. I use, and that's how you and I started our friendship. Right, right, which has lasted for however many Why? decades and that, and lasted for things not uh, quite uh, outside of Foley as well. That's so, true, that's true. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, that's, and that's something, too. I mean, when you're talking about these arcs and all, and telling stories about people and getting together and all, it's not, I'm, I'm not going to say it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know, because you really, at, at a certain point, you have to deliver. If you don't deliver, you're out. You know, somebody can help open a door for you. You got to be able to stay there. Um, but, you know, you meet somebody, somebody puts in a kind word, you may do the same for somebody else, it ripples out. I'm not, it's, I, I'm not, I'm not saying kumbaya, everybody, but. <laughs> to be able to network with people and just genuinely want to get to know someone and help each other out and work together like that. I, I think so, and I think with what we do, I mean, we always say, well, it's a close family. We're only like a degree or two off. But look at other, um, when you go to a doctor's office and they say, oh, yeah, well, i got to refer you to somebody. I'll refer you to so-and-so. I know him. You know, engineering, architecture, lawyer, the same thing. So... I guess be nice to people. I mean, be not nice when it's when it's uh, when you should. But but hopefully but, that hasn't happened too much. <laughs> but these things. But I think these things happen like that. And when I'm, and and when John and I talk about going back decades, when I talk about the guys at uh, film school, and we're still in touch, those you know, and then you realize, wow, that's forty or fifty years all of a sudden. Yes, John. It's asked of us all the time. What was the hardest? prop or footstep cue or anything in, from your vast repertoire, what was the hardest thing that comes to mind for you to do, A, and then B, what was something that was a lot of fun or a funny thing that happened during a cue or during a film? Okay. Can I have minutes to think about this? Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> okay, well. Because it's, everyone it's, has trouble with this question. I know they do. Yeah, because I think what on a general level, and this this happens for me and, and perhaps for you too. You 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 remember the film or the TV show or the game or the commercial or what have you. And a lot of times you I'm gonna, I'm going to get back to people. You remember people, and you remember how much fun it may have been to work, such that something that might have been really tough on one film because mm. somebody was just a pain in the rear. Is really easy on someone else because the easy. Uh, let me do the easy one. I could do a couple of those. Frank Warner, who's no longer with us, we did um, uh, Coming Home, um, uh, Raging Bull. Um, I was going to say. Did you do Close Encounters? Uh, we got in on Close Encounters. It was the, was the first one that we finished up for the guys at MGM. Frank got all the big films that one at one particular time. <clears throat> and Frank, two things about Frank. Um, you know, there's sync and sound when you do Foley. And this is going back then when things weren't so easy to move technologically. And we would do a cue sometimes, and Frank would be on stage, and he said, oh, that's great, that's great. 
And we knew it was out of sync. And we said, Frank, could I have another, another try it? And I want to make it time. No, no. I, lo I loved it because it sounded. It sounded great. I want that sound. Oh, my God. Editors, they'll fix it. Frank was old school. So were his editors. They could always edit it. They could always go back to takes that were uh, not chosen and pull stuff from those, too. They were really good about that. Frank, every time that we started a film for him, and we did a lot of them, said, uh, okay. Let's have fun. That's how he started everyone. And, and that attitude, both attitudes prevail. Number one, let's have some fun with this. And number two, let's try something. Because if the sound is great, Frank will use it. Frank will use it. So I'd say that the easy stuff was in that kind of generalized attitude. I think some of the more difficult things, and, I, I, and when we're talking about technology and changes, it, it rots, is that, um, f f in my experience, the deadlines got slimmer. Mm. You didn't have so much time to do it. So uh, when you're doing an m and &E, music and effects, which is TV shows, which you, you do all the stuff because they go to foreign countries, and you have to do all effects and all music that you as a studio provided to them, and they're crazy, they're uh, sitcoms, everybody's running around and all. You have four hours to cover everything in those props, footsteps, etc. So there's a time crunch. There's oh a boy. <laughs> and not, not only that, but the guy, the person in back of you who's mixing it for the country, they only have four hours. So you can't toss them out stuff that's garbage because they're too. like, my God, this, I don't have the time to deal with this stuff. So... In that sense, it becomes hard. I know that's not quite what you're asking, but I'd have to put it in terms that sometimes the deadlines and sometimes just the overall feel of a movie did that. One of the easiest ones that I thought would be really hard was on one of the Star Trek films. The spaceship comes in for a big crash that just tears up trees and, and mountains and all. And we did, I don't know how many tracks of boulders and and earth moving and metal crunching and moving and I don't know, 20, 25, whatever it was, all this stuff. And at the end and we're playing back and we're playing back to see what we've done. And we're looking and we said, man, it's taken down a lot of trees. We're not hearing any trees. <laughs> we gotta get moving though. So so shoot, let's come on. We, we ran outside, and, we, and there, there was a tree outside the stage, and we cut down some branches, <laughs> and we brought them in, and we said, go, just play the thing. And we took those branches, and we hit them against this metal thing just as hard as we can, pop, 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 like that, <laughs> played it back. It just so happens that they were at a certain level of sound, a high level, that it cut through all of that rumble and all that crunch, and it sounded like trees going down. So something, again, on the easy side, when you think, oh, my God, how are we going to do the trees? We fell into it, you know? Okay. okay? I have one more question, if that's okay. Yeah, and, and then I have this question, and then we're okay. good. And again, David, my memory's failing me. Uh, of course, I know you love watches, were you with me one time when we recorded some watches? Yes. Do you want me to tell that story? Okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a watch freak. Um, I should say I, I, there's, there's not totally because collecting watches when you get into it is like collecting cars. And a lot of guys you see who, who are high-end collectors are also high-end car collectors. So you need that sort of a... a, of a um, a monetary wash to be able to do it. Not that you can't otherwise, but once you, so, okay, so, but I like watches and et cetera. And um, John calls one afternoon, about an hour or so, be, we're both each working on our own stages, and John said, uh, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, I was going to go home, go to gym, whatever. He said, no, no, he said, man, you might like this. We're recording some watches. And I said, Okay, sure, I'll, I'll come by. So, you know, after after my shift, walk over to John's stage. I didn't at the time know, except that it was recording watches in some way or other. I don't know. Uh, and these two guys come up. Now, they're, they're just like like guys, and they've, they're each carrying what you might term like a workout bag, a nylon workout. If they were going to the gym, yeah, that's their gym bag, okay? These two guys. 
and, and they're Asian, and I say, I'll say that for a reason. So they put these bags down. We're outside the stage, and we're talking about, okay, we're going to go in, and now it's, it's Claire and John. Yes, we're recording state, and the, these watches, cool. And they unzip these bags, and they start taking out stuff. Well, what, what we are recording are repeater watches. Now, repeater watches are the ones that chime uh, the hour, some chime every 15 minutes on the half hour, some you could change the chimes. Now you got to think this. How do you get hearable, audible chimes in a wristwatch? Now you're talking the higher, higher level of watchmaking. You're talking about watches that you probably can't get for under 100000 and they, they go up from there. A wow. million dollars, uh, yeah, I've seen. Um, because... Again, how do you get the gongs in there and how do you get the strikers with all the other complications in it? So these watches are made by master, master watch builders in the old way of doing it, of course, which is by hand, okay? So these guys are pulling out all of these watches. Number one, there are millions of dollars of watches oh that these guys gosh. are carrying. <laughs> Number two, it probably represented at that very time the largest collection of repeater watches any place in the world, I would imagine. Wow. That could be checked out, but they had a lot of them. And the reason I say that they were two Asian guys, they had a, 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 a website, and it was a lifestyle website. <coughs> so they dealt with stuff like cars, cigars, singing old scotch, stuff like that. And watches, high-end watches, of course, of course. Um, a hot place for watch sales, I don't know, I imagine right now, but it was, was Singapore for some reason. So the Asian countries were buying watches, and they're usually huge watches. I mean by that, like about 45 millimeters or so, big watches. And they sell a lot of them there. And China, it, with the growing money, it becomes a status symbol as well. So anyway, these guys had watches. And so what we did is that each watch, for each watch, the guys would program it to say, okay, a couple of minutes it's going to chime. And we pull them in front of the microphone <laughs> and say, okay, this is watch, uh, this is a Jaeger Le Coutre, uh, 1943, go. And then record the watch. And I imagine what they did was, was in, in so doing, create a library where somebody who would be interested in saying, hmm, I wonder what that Rolex in 1953, what that repeater sounded like, they could go and get it. So it was an audio file of of stuff there was w the one thing that really blew my mind and there were many things that did was they had a watch from 1940s that was a repeater and my thought was wow this was produced during world war ii when they didn't have stuff to do and who the hell was making watches but somebody put in the time at that time to make a repeater watch i thought that was quite stunning but yeah well yeah elliot tyson who uh knows one of the gentlemen that came that day mentioned to me that, uh, hey, could we record some? Sure. And it just so happened this other gentleman was coming into LAX who knew the gentleman had the watches that Elliot knew. Long story short, as you said, both these gentlemen showed up, pulled all these out, and of course I casually say to, to David, yeah, these are beautiful. This thing must cost like, what, about $5,000. Oh my gosh, so you had no idea. And David said, that one's probably worth about 380000 I almost dropped it. <laughs> that would have been bad. I was so frightened. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah, that's the other thing. That's the, uh, yes, yes. When I was, I was buying a watch once and I was saving up my pennies for it and we'd go in to take a look at it. It was down in, in Japantown. And the guy had just gotten in a watch, and this was many years ago, and I think the watch was at 100000 And he said, here, let me show you this. And, he sh and I said, whoa, that's it. And he said, put it on. And I said, no. No, I, 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 are you kidding? I know. And, and he put it on me. I mean, I, and it was the same thing like you're saying. Like, what do you do with the Oops. Right, right, but thank God that didn't happen. What advice do you have for anyone out there who wants to be a Foley artist or a sound editor or picture editor or all of what you've done? Okay. Specifically um, with film, let's take film first, motion pictures, TV. There are more people who want to do it than there exist jobs. You know, for whatever reasons, it's seen as a glamour thing. It's... You know, the pay, uh, the pay is nice if you compare it. So you're going to get competition, you know. When somebody asks us about Foley, 
Number one, we say, uh, we slap them upside of the head usually and say, go learn economics and banking. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, without being facetious, we say, do you have maybe a year to do stuff like make a pest of yourself? None of the studio's going to be tough to get in, but there's a lot of little places. Call, you know. What can, can you make coffee? I'm, you know, I, I'm not demeaning people by it, but what I'm saying is that... Get in there. Again, open yourself up. So what if you started emptying the trash? I'm just saying that. And then you make friends with somebody, and you say, man, I'd like to see what you do. And then they say, well, stop by sometime. And then you do that, and you say, wow, that's what I really want to do. And they say, well, maybe there'll be a something we could put you on however it is but you're going to have to do that and there's going to be other people doing it i think too that and and that that lies with uh, make yourself a friend there, there was okay i got a couple sorry one um we received a letter ken and i i don't know how we got this from a woman in sweden this goes way back and and she said, I just graduated from the Swedish film school, and uh, I'm going to be in uh, L.A. for this amount of time, and I'm trying to meet with people. Would you like to meet with me? Well, number one, we could not grant her a job. We were not in that position. We, and we said, what the heck? Certainly, you want to come by, we'll take you to lunch. You want to talk? We can talk. We can talk. Um, and, and she set up, uh, and two things. Number one is that I think the Swedish school um, educated people in terms of specifics. So if you wanted to be sound, they'd use sound. It wasn't like you want to learn film, you learn film, whatever. <clears throat> so they, weren't, they don't graduate a lot of people per each year, number one. Number two is that I wonder how many letters did she write and how many people just threw it in the wastebasket or whatever. I think part of why we said that is thinking that is like she probably got... 99.9 percent .9 either rejection or no nobody but it's that one yes that could make or break well it. she met with us i'm saying and maybe help get her feet wet if anything she met with some other people she ended up moving here becoming a sound editor is uh, one of our union member uh, academy members um etc what is her great. name that's great um urika urika uh, akander yes is her name uh, and real pleasant, and 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 just a spot-on editor, obviously, and gets big big projects. Um, the other thing, oh, oh, I know what I know what. When you asked the question about that, lately been getting together with friends from whiles ago, yeah. And and one question that's come up not just once is that well if you if you now could sit down with your twenty year old self what would you tell that person and I think a lot of us answer just have more self confidence I I think I would add to that without losing the humility in other words and and I know that that uh, swagger plays and boldness plays I'm not saying that it doesn't but. But at the same time, you could have a grateful mindset as well as being confident. I think I think in terms of like you could always learn something about it. So you're not you're, you you. I mean, and I, I mean that with anything. I was once talking to a guy about swimming, and he was a. Uh, um, it was at this pool. There was a meet. I was asking about the pool. He was a lifeguard. I'm assuming that here I'm talking to a guy who's been a competitive swimmer for at the time dozens if not decades of years and we're talking about swim stroke and he's talking about I'm still learning swim stroke. So you take something like that and you say, wow, that's still in the process of becoming. Here's a guy who's a lifeguard who probably swam college or whatever. He's still mecking around with his stress, still learning stuff. And I'd say that's with anything. And that's why I say, yes, have the confidence that you could go in and do something based on the good things that you've done before. Certainly have the humility to say, yeah, there's, there's, there are books I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, David, I just want to say uh, a couple things, one on a personal note, one on a business note, personal being you're one of the best people I know. Mm, one, John, uh, two... I love you dearly, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Sarah, and, of course, the audience. And, in fact, if they had any questions for you, 
would it be okay if they pointed them toward our, towards our, <clears throat> if they had any questions for you, would it be okay if they pointed them towards our website and we maybe mush them along to you? Absolutely. I would do, I would do my best to answer something and, uh, I will echo that too. I've gotten to know Sarah over these last couple of years and it's been such a delight and your friendship means quite a lot to me as I'm saying with people and all you, you go back to the people who you really like, the people who work on whatever levels and, and that becomes the most meaningful thing. So thank you, John, for uh, those years and years. I'm right there with you, David, and certainly, um, you know, again, thanks for we're taking the time today. And, My uh, pleasure. You know, also, too, uh, you never know. That phone might ring because uh, uh, Shelly, I love Shelly dearly. She has to have a break once in a while. So, um, I, will, I will tell you, I have my shoes packed, <laughs> and I can get to them in about 60 seconds. Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, David. Thank you, John. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. If you liked it, be sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find us on YouTube at The Right Scuff. If you need more information, please check out our website at therightscuff.com. We really appreciate all of your feedback, guys. I'm trying to do better and I'm trying to learn other things than GarageBand in order to get the sound quality up, in order to get everything up to speed so i appreciate all of you hanging in there with me and all of your feedback i hope you guys enjoyed this episode and one thing that david wanted to mention as well well he had a couple things he wanted to mention but we will have him back on the podcast we will have many more people on the podcast so be sure to look out for david again in upcoming episodes thanks for listening you guys